This week, the limits to human lifespan. We think that we're not going to be achieving any sort of radical increase in life expectancy anytime soon. And when neural network artificial intelligence becomes stupid. These state-of-the-art deep neural networks can be easily tricked into thinking that they're seeing something when in fact what they're seeing is completely unrecognizable. Plus tracking mutations in aging stem cells. This is The Nature Podcast for October the 6th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. This week, I've been finding out about problems with artificial intelligence, AI. Ah, the inevitable rise of super-intelligent robot overlords. No. Oh. Well, not exactly. Oh. It's the problem of not knowing what a computer is thinking. Our very own reporter, Davide Castelvecchi, has written a feature on the topic this week, so I dragged him from his news desk to explain more. So the article is about not so much what can we do with AI, but if AI gives us a certain answer, how do we know how it came to that answer? So it's kind of, can we trust the computers? Or there can be situations where we know that they are giving the right answer, but we don't know why. And this is a particular particular kind of AI, isn't it? Not just computers in general. Correct. So it's a kind of AI that has uh, kind of taken the world by storm in the last uh, four years or so. It's called deep learning. And deep learning is kind of a, a revival of an early form of AI called neural networks which is inspired by the way that neurons are uh, networked in the brain. And because these these neural networks learn by sifting through large sets of data, and the more data they go through, the smarter they become. So the idea is that rather than trying to program all the information into a computer, you invent a computer that can learn, like the human brain can learn. You feed it information and it works things out for itself. So what's the problem with this? The problem, problem is we don't quite know in detail how the human brain learns. And similarly, we don't know how a neural network learns. I mean, we have some clues. But we, um, we designed them. How can we not know what they're doing? Because we just let them do their thing. So it tweaks all these little formulas that it has inside. We didn't program, we didn't tell the algorithm what patterns to look for. It's very different from a classical algorithm. People describe it as a black box because it really we don't know what patterns it's, it's learning to, to see unless we start opening this black box. So, Adam, that's AI's black box problem. Well, it doesn't sound like a very serious problem. The program AlphaGo used deep learning, right? And that mastered the ancient board game Go and beat a top player. Deep learning is clearly pretty nifty, so does it actually matter if we don't know how it does its magic? Well, maybe not for winning at board games, but it depends what you're using it for. I spoke with Dean Pomelo, a researcher who stumbled across the black box problem while sitting in a driverless car. Back in 1988, what we did was we took a big workstation of the time, put it in the back of a Chevy van, and fed camera images into the computer that basically learned to map directly the images that it was being fed into steering commands in order to keep the vehicle on the road. We drove several hundred miles at a stretch without touching the steering wheel. But there were circumstances when things would get thrown off. Coming up to a bridge, it got confused and, uh, you know, I had to take over to avoid it, like, steering into the edge of the bridge. 
but it's often difficult to tease out exactly what the network is, is as you will, thinking. So uh, it's often the case that um, you know, the, the system learns to key off idiosyncrasies in the environment that you really wish it wouldn't. So there had been a nice grass on the side of the road that this had become part of the, the, the model that the system had learned to rely on. But, you know, that grass, as we know, will go away when you get to a bridge. But, Dean, that sounds like it could just be solved by better training, showing it more images, more varied images. If you can train a computer to be really accurate in a lot of circumstances, is it still a problem to not know what it's thinking? I believe that it is. I mean, they're using machine learning and artificial neural networks now to diagnose diseases, say, by uh, having them analyze mammogram photographs. And the doctor would really like to know why the system thinks this particular mammogram scan has a breast tumor in it, not just, yep, it's there somewhere, you figure it out. That was Dean Pomelo from the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon. That mammogram example is pretty important for any research uses of neural networks, because researchers don't just want answers, they want explanations. And if you don't know what your computer's thinking, your driverless van might just drive off a bridge. I'm not going anywhere near that or any driverless van. But the point is, even if it was safe 99.9% of the time, you still can't be sure how it will react to unexpected circumstances. Jeff Clune has been studying this kind of AI in the lab and accidentally found out just how dumb artificial intelligence can be. I'm assuming we're about to hear from Jeff or you wouldn't be bringing this up. We are indeed. Here's Jeff. Our discovery that deep neural networks are easily fooled was the classic case of scientific serendipity. And so we had an AI artist and uh, its job was to create a picture and then we would show that picture to the AI judge. And the AI judge was a pre-trained uh, neural network that knew how to recognize 1,000 different types of images. So it had been trained to recognize motorcycles and bananas and trees. And the AI artist would create a picture. And at the initially, it was a random picture. We would show it to the AI judge. And the AI judge would say, oh, yeah, that's a banana with you know 1% probability. But really, that doesn't look anything like a banana. And then the AI artist would make a few changes to the picture and show it back to the AI judge. And the AI judge would say, okay, now that's like maybe like a 2% banana, but still very, very far. And the AI artist would keep tweaking the picture and showing it to the judge and kind of making images that looked more and more like bananas and motorcycles and trees. So we initially hoped and thought that the AI artist would produce beautiful renderings of trees and bananas and motorcycles. But instead what we got was this huge class of images where the AI judge was absolutely certain that the AI artist had produced an example of a motorcycle and a banana. And then when we looked at these thousand images, they were all completely unrecognizable. They were just garbage. They just looked like endless static, like a TV tuned to a dead channel. And it turned out that the mistake was within the AI judge that these state-of-the-art deep neural networks that everybody's investing billions of dollars in trying to put on driverless cars and in you know, almost every Google product out there, that these systems can be easily tricked into thinking that they're seeing something and they're certain that they're seeing something when in fact what they're seeing is completely unrecognisable. That was Jeff Kloon from the University of Wyoming. That does seem kind of like a fatal flaw if your AI can easily be fooled. OK, I'm convinced. Let's give up on deep learning. But... What if the computers could tell us what they're thinking? Ah. Take Dean Pomlo's driverless cars. 
if you could get the computer to produce an image of what it thinks it's seeing, so basically its mental image of the scene, you can tell pretty quickly when it's getting confused and hopefully why. And presumably grab the steering wheel in time. Hopefully. Well, until we work all this out, I'm staying well away from driverless cars. Understandable. Thanks to Dean Pomelo and Jeff Clune, and we also heard from Nature reporter Davide Castelvecchi, whose feature is online at nature.com/news. You can also check out our video on the computer that mastered Go at youtube.com/naturevideochannel. Slightly abbreviated show this week as we're skipping the news chat. I know that sounds like heresy on the week that the Nobel Prizes for Science are announced, but fear not. We're going to release this week's news chat as a podcast extra, so we have time to cover the chemistry prize, which is announced last. Keep an ear out for that, arriving in your podcast feed shortly. Still to come later in the show, using mini organs to find out how stem cells accumulate mutations. But now it's time for the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. 3D printed synthetic bone implanted into animals can help regenerate their natural bone. Researchers at Northwestern University in Illinois printed bones made from a calcium mineral mixed with a polymer and implanted them into mice, rats, and a macaque. The synthetic material integrated into the tissue and stimulated bone growth. The fake bones can be printed in any shape and are almost as strong as natural bone. Read more in Science Translational Medicine. European countries trying to restore ancient forests may have been planting the wrong kind of tree. A study of fossil pollen from the Czech Republic suggests that conifers once dominated the region, not the broadleaf trees like beech that people had long assumed formed native forests. The evidence suggests that this part of Central Europe was filled with spruce trees for thousands of years, meaning that forest restoration programs might have to change their plans. The paper is in Conservation Biology. Life expectancy around the world has skyrocketed over the last 50 years. Someone born today can expect to live for about 71 years. Just 50 years ago, that figure was just 55. In that time, there have been massive reductions in child mortality, and medicine is getting better and better at tackling common killers like cardiovascular disease and cancer. And so, people are living longer and longer. Well, sort of. Although life expectancy has gone up. One particular number hasn't, and that's the record number of years lived. The world's oldest people just don't seem to be getting any older. What does this tell us about human lifespans? I called up Jay Olshansky, a researcher on public health at the University of Illinois at Chicago, to find out more. We have to realize that there are limits to how long we can live, just like there are limits to how fast we can run, and we have to recognize that the, that those limits. Are imposed on us by our own biology, which we can't currently modify. What makes us think that? Why can't I expect to maybe live to two hundred if I'm lucky? Well, you know, it's it's a funny question about what evidence is there for the fact that we can't live exceptionally longer than we do now. How about the fact that that no one ever has?、Um, how about a history of、uh, of death that is pervasive, not just in humans but in a, in all other Uh, sexually reproducing species. So there's a reason. There are biological reasons why mice can only live for three thousand days, and dogs dogs can only live for five thousand days, and why humans, on average, can only live for about twenty nine or thirty thousand days. 
There's a paper out this week from three researchers at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. They're trying to confirm the idea that there's sort of an upper limit to how long humans live. How did they look at this question and what did they find? Well, they took a look at at a couple of things uh, in the world of demographics. The first is they looked at the longest-lived people in the world, what's referred to as maximum lifespan. The current world record for human longevity is 122 by Jean Calmon from southern France. That record has not been broken since 1997, in spite of the fact that there have been plenty of uh, centenarians and supercentenarians past 110. And so that was uh, one piece of evidence uh, that they found. And the other piece of evidence was an indication that the declining mortality uh, observed at older ages, which has largely been attributable to reductions in cardiovascular disease, stagnated um, after about uh, 1980. One would have predicted that the reductions would have continued at older and older and older ages across time, and that didn't happen. And so that this, these two pieces of information led them to believe that there's compelling evidence to suggest that there is, in fact, a limit to life. But, you know, aside from the fact that that death occurs at quite regular rates for, for all humans is perhaps one of the most compelling pieces of evidence of all. So what's happening at or around 122, which means that that is, at least as far as we currently understand it, the limit to human life? Is it like a Mission Impossible tape that's somehow time to expire? Uh, it's an interesting question because a lot of people seem to think that there's some sort of ticking time bomb in our bodies and that this time bomb goes off at a certain age. And uh, that can't happen. Evolution could not have given rise to a ticking time bomb that goes off at older ages in humans because natural selection does not operate in older regions of the lifespan. It's sort of like imagining that there's some sort of time bomb in your automobile that goes off at a million miles. Well, there would be no point in engineering a time bomb for a car that goes off at a million miles if you don't drive the car that long. What we do have are fixed genetic programs for growth, development, reproduction, I mean, and the process of, of, of growing up and developing and turning into a reproducing adult is, operates like an orchestra. It's a genetically driven process. And we tend to think that aging is an inadvertent byproduct of these fixed genetic programs for other attributes of the lifespan. And that's probably one of the most critical reasons why it is that we think that we're not going to be achieving any sort of radical increase in life expectancy anytime soon, unless we alter that basic fixed genetic program for other life history traits, we're not going to achieve radical life extension. Is it still debatable whether there is this limit or do results like the results from this paper kind of put that question to bed? It will always be debatable. In science, we don't, there's a lot of things that we don't know definitively. There are going to be people out there who don't like the message contained within this paper because they don't like the idea that we can't forever continue to manufacture survival time for us. And some people have a vested interest in wanting to perpetuate the story that we can forever uh, extend life. And I think we really need to recognize that there are, in fact, limits, uh, recognize what those limits are when they operate, and as a result, focus our attention much more on extending healthy life rather than on extending duration of life. 
That was Jay Olshansky, who's written a news and views on this new research on human lifespan. Find that, plus the paper itself, at nature.com forward slash nature. We hope you love listening to the show even half as much as we love putting it together each week. If so, then it would be amazing if you could leave us a review or rating on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. It really does help us reach more eager ears. But if that's not your style, we'd still love to know your thoughts on the show. Get in touch on Twitter at Nature Podcast or drop us an email, podcast at nature.com. OK, now on with the show. Stem cells. We all have them. Throughout our lives, these little cellular blank slates fervently serve particular organs. Liver stem cells, for example, bide their time until the big day when they can differentiate into liver cells, replenishing the liver's supply. But what happens as they get older? Just like other cells, stem cells are thought to gradually accumulate genetic mutations, which can lead to diseases like cancer. In a study published this week in Nature, a team of Dutch scientists wanted to get to the bottom of how and when these mutations occur. They took tissue samples from donors of different ages and used these to create miniature versions of organs. They were then able to monitor mutations in the mini-organ stem cells. But we'll get to that in a minute. First, Noah Baker called up Ruben van Boxtel, who started off by explaining some of the background. Every organ has, uh, has its own stem cell or own stem cell type, which can throughout life uh, self-renew or give progeny to the, to the more differentiated cells, so the more functional cells that actually uh, perform the function uh, of the different organs. Now, how might a stem cell of an older person differ from a stem cell of a younger person? Actually, from, from birth, your, your cells are believed to, to gradually uh, accumulate mutations. Um, every division a cell makes, also a stem cell, is believed to be accompanied by, uh, by the accumulation of, of DNA mutations. So what this would mean if you have an older cell is that you will have many more mutations, somatic mutations in its genome than a younger cell. And this could uh, affect uh, the, the, the phenotype or the function of the cell. And one thing that that could affect is the likelihood of that cell to develop a cancer. The more mutations a stem cell uh, has, the more chance that this cell itself or its progeny can uh, turn into a cancer cell. Now, scientists have been aware of this idea that these stem cells gradually build up mutations throughout their life and throughout a person's life. But up until now, that hasn't been exactly understood. But that's something that you've been looking into in this paper. Tell me what it is that you've done. The difficulty and the challenge of studying somatic mutations in normal cells is that every cell will have its own unique set of mutations. So if you will just take a a biopsy uh, or a, a bit of blood then uh, it's impossible to, uh, to determine all the mutations that have accumulated in a specific single stem cell. So to overcome this, we have, um, we have used uh, organoid culturing. And when you say organoid, you mean like miniature versions of organs, of people's organs living outside of their bodies? That's correct, yes. Yes, so these, uh, we call it organoid or mini-organs indeed uh, because they reflect uh, the, um, um, the, the architecture of the original tissue. So these uh, cultures, they have all the different uh, cells uh, in, in them that you can also find in the original tissue. And you took samples of, from various different patients of varying ages. How many different donors did you, did you have in your study? We have now 19 different donors. We assessed three different tissues, colon, small intestine, and uh, liver. Um, in total, 90 donors, and they vary in age range from uh, 3 till 
87 years old. How quickly did you find these mutations accumulating with time? We look at the, the correlation or uh, between the age of the donors and the number of mutations. We find that there's an, uh, an, an, an positive correlation. And if you then look at uh, the, the slope of this model, we find that uh, these cells accumulate 40 mutations per year per stem cell independent of tissue type. But it wasn't totally uniform. You did find differences between different tissue types as well. So although the number of mutations that you see accumulating in the different tissues that we assessed is, is uh, highly similar, we did see that uh, the mutation type is quite different, and this varies between tissues, uh, which means that you will have a different uh, mutation spectrum. And so what do these different types of mutation mean uh, in terms of the disease that may result from them? The mutation type is really a, a reflection of the processes that cause them. And what we see is that uh, for one of these mutation types that we see a lot in the colon, but also in the small intestine, we see that these, um, that these types of mutations, you can also find them back in the, 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 the genes, which are usually uh, first hit uh, or contain a lot of uh, driver mutations for colorectal cancer. And what this means is that this, uh, the process which causes these mutations can also uh, cause uh, cancer driver mutations. So it means that, uh, for, for, in a way, these unavoidable processes, which are constantly active during life, can actually cause uh, diseases such as cancer. Are there any implications for disease treatment in the future? Are there any indications for potential therapies or even prevention techniques which could be, which could be used based on this new understanding? For these three organs, I think it will be difficult to actually have an, an implication. However, with this new technique, we can actually dissect and find the, uh, the mutational processes that, that are uh, active and cause somatic mutation accumulation in stem cells. So uh, we are currently, for example, applying this to uh, uh, patients who have more risk of developing cancer due to chronic inflammation or, uh, for example, uh, in, in, in fatty livers, where you also have a, a higher chance of getting cancer. And we want to apply this technique to these cases and then actually uh, identify the, the processes that cause mutation accumulation. And this, of course, if we know the processes, we can um, hopefully also find ways to, to, to prevent the activity of these processes by targeting them. That was Ruben van Boxtel from the University Medical Centre in Utrecht in the Netherlands. You can find out more about the study at nature.com forward slash nature. That's all for this week. But make sure to check back shortly for our podcast extra, where we'll break down the announcements of all the Nobels. And don't think we forgot the little Rosetta spacecraft, which on Friday heroically crashed into a comet. We had a broadcast all about the controlled collision on Facebook Live. Find that alongside a news story at nature.com forward slash news. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. 